Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 156, Stalin Strikes Back. Last time, the Germans had been able to penetrate Stalin's and Zhukov's latest defensive line to the northwest of the capital. Indeed, elements of Hopner's 2nd Panzer Division had come within artillery range of the Soviet capital. In reaction, Stalin, and he was the only one with such authority, activated one of his recently created shock armies. General Kuznetsov's 1st Shock Army and General Lazukov's 20th Army and ordered them into the gap that allowed the Germans to get as close as they had. Meanwhile, to the south of the capital, the news was better for the defenders. The also newly created and renamed 1st Guards Cavalry Corps, commanded by Bevlov, had been able to head south of Moscow and sneak up on Colonel Eberbach's whittled-down 17th Panzer Division on November 27th, and not only halted its advance, but pushed back what was Guderian's still-only active command. By the end of November, despite Bevlov's success to the south, Moscow's defenses to the north and south seemed, to General Bach, commander of Army Group Center, to be on the breaking point. The Russians had cracked, but not broken. What was needed was one more hammer blow for the entire defensive structure to fall in on itself. With that in mind, Bach released his 4th Army, which was to attack straight at Moscow from the west. For the Army Group Center's commander believed he had an ace up his sleeve. Intercepting Soviet communications, the Germans had learned that Zhukov, out of sheer desperation, had ordered every division west of the capital to send one platoon to help fill in the recently and hopefully closed gap near Roskazovsky's 16th Army to the northwest. So now was the time to strike. Bach ordered Kluge's 4th Army to strike just south of Zvengorod itself some 60 kilometers, or 37 miles, due west of the capital, while another part of the 4th hit a little further south, at Naro-Fominsk. Bach's thinking was, why send in another attack that would penetrate, but not far enough that would only end up getting itself cut off? The Germans had already done this plenty of times to the Russians. No, if the southwestern approaches to the capital could be pierced, that might lead to the shattering of the entire Western defensive position. The 4th Army's advance would surround and destroy Gorovnov's 5th Army and Efremov's 33rd Army. Then the 4th would be relatively free, as the center, northwestern, and southwestern approaches would be, more or less, in German hands, to get onto the Minsk and Kiev highways and enter the outskirts of Moscow. Kluge prepared his three shock groups for the attack that would end with them, hopefully, in the western section of Moscow. 
the 267th Infantry Division would hit just south of Zvengarod. The 20th Army Corps' 258th and 292nd Infantry and 3rd Motorized Divisions would attack on the 267th's right flank, just a bit further south, just north of Nairo-Fominsk, while the 183rd Infantry and the 20th Panzer Division, along with one regiment of the 15th Infantry, would move in just south of Nairo-Fominsk, thus protecting the main attack's right flank. On December 1st, the three groups attacked, all seemingly heading for Golitsnyo, southwest of Moscow. They were to then break apart for their individual attacks to confuse the Russians. The first part of the attack worked as the Russians reacted to this concentrated advance, then scattered itself as the three German forces went on their individual vectors. But the German attackers were not as formidable as they believed, having limited armor, while the Soviets were not as weak or as desperate as they seemed, having carefully laid out impressive anti-tank defenses. When the German 267th Infantry Division hit the Soviet 5th Army, just south of Zvengarod, again due east from Moscow, the 5th not only halted the German soldiers, but pushed them back to their jump-off points. What's more, when the 258th Infantry and 3rd Motorized Divisions attacked on the right flank of the 267th, and the 183rd Infantry and 20th Panzer Divisions attacked to the right of them, they all ran into the Soviet 1st Guard's Motorized Rifle Division. The 1st Guards were not pushed back, but the attackers managed to get around them, to the north and south. This looked like the beginning of the end for the stubborn first guards. In fact, on December 2nd, Bach told his officers that the defenses west of Moscow appeared to be about to break. But then came another Soviet counterattack, the force thrown together at the last minute. After they assembled east of the German leading units, the 18th Rifle Brigade the 5th and 20th Tank Brigades, the 23rd and 24th Ski Battalions from Efremov's 33rd Army, split in two, went to either side of the oncoming German forces and smashed into their flanks. But far more than that, the Soviets, with their flanking attack, seemed about to snip off the tip of the German attack. The next day, December 3rd, the German 258th and 3rd Motorized Divisions did an about-face, and fought even harder to get back to the main line of the German 4th Army, along the river Nara. Bach's capital-capturing battle plan had utterly failed. If the commander of Armour Group Center hoped for a reprieve, delivered by his forces attacking to the northwest of the capital, he would once again be let down. Hopner was still trying to get through or around the 16th and 20th armies, stationed just northwest of Moscow's outer limits. But in getting this far, Hopner, indeed Armor Group Center, had blunted their own fine army, to the point where the men and machines were exhausted. To Hopner's immediate left, Reinhardt's 3rd Panzer Group was faring no better. The Soviet 1st Shock Army, recently released by Stalin, had checked Reinhardt's panzers, just west of the Moscow Canal, 
some 67 kilometers or 41 miles due north of the capital. At first, the Germans were just stalled south of Iak Roma, but by December 3rd were starting to be pushed back west, ever so slightly. On December 5th, a blast of cold weather came to the area, setting new record lows. The Germans, in their various locations around the Soviet capital, were stalled. Depending on their various locations, 15 to 28 kilometers, or 9 to 14 miles, from the main Moscow defensive lines. Meanwhile, south of Moscow, Guderian's 2nd Panzer Army might have been brought up just short of the capital, but there were still objectives that could be carried out to strengthen their relative attacking position. Now, turning back toward Tula, to their relative southwest, the Panzers and infantry moved in that direction to surround the Soviet 50th Army, protecting the city. To accomplish this, Guderian had his remaining operable armor gathered into two groups, under the control of the 24th Motorized Corps. These two groupings of armor, along with the infantry of the regiment Gross Deutschland, were to head back west, which would bring them just north of Tula. The idea was for this force to be met by a third force coming from the east, from the 31st and 296th Infantry Divisions of the 43rd Army Corps. Once they met, the road from Tula to Moscow would be cut, the town and the Soviet 50th Army encircled. The two German forces moved out, heading toward one another on December 2nd. The Panzers, northeast of Tula, did make it to the Moscow Road but then found themselves dealing with counterattack after counterattack from the 112th Tank and 340th Rifle Divisions, the 31st Cavalry Division, and parts of not a few rifle divisions. While this was going on, the German 31st Infantry Division, attempting to head east, was stopped cold by the 194th and 258th Rifle Divisions. This planned attack was no more successful than the ones to the northwest and north of Moscow. Guderian was forced by necessity to withdraw his wearied men and dilapidated machines and focus on defense, hoping that would not be the case. And somehow, despite these three advances coming to nothing, Bach was still not done attacking. He contacted General Yodel, Hitler's OKW operations chief, saying that, yes, his men were beyond exhausted, but he would find a way to stay on the offensive, as to not give the Russians the initiative. This was not bravado, but sensible tactics. It would be putting his men in a bad way when, outnumbered, to go on the defensive, leaving a larger army closer to its base, the room and freedom to hit them wherever and whenever they wanted. But it was at this moment, as to the north of Moscow, when the temperature fell to minus 31 degrees Fahrenheit. The Germans were stopped cold, no pun intended, and for now the men were only thinking of surviving the cold nights and watching out for the coming of any Soviets during the day. And the defenders were coming. Though the Germans had almost destroyed themselves in getting to this point, the Russians were only getting stronger. 
During November and December, Bach did not receive one division's worth of reinforcements, whereas the Soviets had raised entire armies during that same time, specifically 75 divisions worth of fighting men. Or, put another way, the Stavka put into the field during early December the same amount of men that were already fighting Army Group Center on October 1st, and this just as the Germans were going over to the defensive. What's more, the Red Air Force was about to launch its fight to retain air superiority. As for those parts of the Soviet military organization in between the Stavka and the fighting men at the front, these aspects had also been improved by early December. Command structures and lines of communication had been worked out that had previously cost Soviet Russia tens of thousands of men who were not well coordinated. But as can be seen by the defense of Moscow to its north, south, and west, that had been drastically altered. As Moscow was the linchpin, the ultimate goal in this game of deadly chess, it would have been prudent at this point for Bach of Army Group Center to simply call on his equivalents to his north and south and ask for help in finishing off the Russian capital as a place of communication and organization. But had he even asked, the answer would have been a plea of help from those commands in dealing with their own wintry nightmares. Army Group North By the end of the first week of November, the most forward German troops, Lieb's 39th Motorized Corps, were positioned but surrounded at Tekvin, some 35 miles or 55 kilometers east-southeast of Volkhov, and just south of Volkhov itself. We have already seen the German forces below Volkhov, just below Lake Lodoga, try to take the city in late October but were repulsed by newly organized Russian troops who arrived from the east, literally, as the Germans were coming to the city. And there the Germans stayed, not being allowed to advance further north nor east, but not south either, as they would have been attacked while on the move, had they tried to vacate. It was the same for Lieb's men at Tekvin. They were surrounded on three sides, to the east, north, and south and currently were not strong enough, i.e. not enough men, tanks, guns, or shells, to force their way in any of those three directions. With the Germans at Tekvin giving up the initiative, the Stavka attempted to take it back. Releasing General Meretzkov from the NKVD's prison, he was given the 4th Army, which had recently been defeated in not pushing back the Germans in the area, and reinforcements as well, and was then ordered to retake Tetvin. Fighting alongside the hopefully reinvigorated Soviet 4th Army would be the 54th and 52nd Armies, yet they would remain under Stavka control. Meretskov had to first prove himself worthy before having more men placed under his control. The goal for the Soviets was simple. Before Leningrad had been completely cut off, Supplies had come from Moscow, through Tekvin, to the city of Lenin. Stalin wanted that route reopened. Before General Meretskov could get his 4th Army organized and underway, the 52nd Army, under Stavka control, 
but directly under General Klykov's direction, therefore a part of the Leningrad front, moved out on November 12th. They were just southeast of Volkov and hoped to push the Germans back west and perhaps to the south, further away from Leningrad. Lieb reacted to this attack by having some of the units stationed at Tetgen pull back, head west by northwest, and reinforce the 39th Motorized Corps' flank. The objective to push north and take Volkov was all but forgotten. For now, they were only seeking to hold their ground and survive the cold. With the Germans' hold on Tepkin now weakened, General Meretskov took his 4th Army, broke it into three shock groups, and sent it at the German-held city on November 19th. Now Lieb had another crisis on his hands. The Germans there held out for the first few attacks, but each time lost men in doing so, and those losses were not being replaced. After each successive attack was repulsed, Lieb had sent word to Hitler asking for permission to abandon the city. It was doing them no good as a jumping-off point. If anything, they were losing men with nothing to show for it. Hearing nothing from de Fuhrer, the men at Tevkin fought on until December 8th. By then, their dispositions were crumbling fast. If they did not leave now, they never would. The decision was thankfully made without Berlin's permission, and those elements of the 39th Motorized Corps pulled back. They had taken the town just one month ago. Yet Meretzkov's men, nor those of the Stavka, let up. Hence the Germans were forced to backpedal while fighting off the advancing Russians. It was not until late in December did the retreating remaining German forces reach and insert themselves into the main German line along the Volkov River. Meretzkov's days of being in Stalin's doghouse and a guest of the NKVD were behind him. The 4th Army, along with the 52nd Army, were transformed into the new Volkov Front and placed under Meritskov. Additionally, he was given the fresh 26th and 59th Armies. But having been awarded by Stalin, the Soviet Premier wanted something back for his gifts. Meritskov was expected to take his straightforward but successful counterattack at Tevkin and turn it into a general counterattack against Army Group North. If all went well, the siege of Leningrad would be lifted, at least partially, so goods could enter the beleaguered city by a direct land route. Hitler's Allies in the South As for his various partners assisting Army Group South, Hitler had no faith in the Hungarians, so they were kept out of the planning and preparation for Barbarossa. At most, Hitler agreed to let Hungarian forces clean up the various trouble spots in Yugoslavia behind the advancing German forces when that country was invaded. Previously, cities in Hungary had been bombed by supposed Soviet aircraft in early June, causing the government to panic and join the Axis on June 27th. In truth, it was probably German-ordered Romanian planes that made the bomb run. Still, Hungary was now a part of the coalition against the USSR. Only after Barbarossa was underway did Hitler let Hungary contribute anything to the invasion of Russia. 
A force of 24,000 fast corps were put together, but with second-rate German and Italian planes, and a total of 81 Hungarian-made Toldi tanks. The fast corps saw some action in July, but by November, between their lack of bloodlust for warfare and high casualties, they were removed from any frontline fighting. In contrast, Romania gave everything it could to the German military cause. This was not due to a fanatical belief in the Nazi cause. It was simple self-preservation. During the summer of 1940, Soviet Russia seized Bessarabia, and France and Britain were unable to help. What's more, Germany and Italy had taken more territory from Romania to give to Hungary and Bulgaria. What was left of the country shared a long border with the ever-avarous Stalin. Between that and its large petroleum reserves, Hitler was forced to step in and save the country. Its ploesti oil fields provided one half of Germany's needs. Just as important, now that Soviet troops were in Bessarabia, they were no more than 100 miles away from that oil Hitler desperately needed. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. The planners of Barbarossa considered the rump state of Romania vital in their upcoming attack on Edessa, along the Black Sea, and on the Crimea, while at the same time defending Ploesti. After Romania signed the Tripartite Agreement in November of 1940, some 63,000 German army and Luftwaffe personnel came into the country. Valuing Romania slightly more than Hungary, Romanian leaders in Bucharest, itself just south of Ploesti, was told of Barbarossa two days before it commenced. And needing it to succeed, the Romanians threw themselves into preparing to help with the attack. And that was the problem. Having been trained by the French, the soldiers were obsessed with and possessed material for defense only. But now that they were to head east, their various military pieces of equipment, some German, some Italian, some French or Dutch, were organized and prepared. But because of this hodgepodge of designs, repairs and support would quickly become a nightmare. To make matters worse, the older Romanian officers were corrupt, set in their ways, and cared little about improving the fighting ability of their men under them. So Berlin took as many younger officers as they could back to Germany for training. By the time the USSR was attacked, only three Romanian infantry divisions, along with some frontier and guards units, were considered good enough to help with the fight in the east. As for the newly independent Slovakia, it would only contribute one mobile brigade, later a division, to the fight. Yet the Slovaks were not trained by Germany, who did not think much of their fighting prowess. By October of 1941, the Slovakian forces were pulled back and used for rearguard action. 
When we last left Army Group South, the Russian defensive line had been shattered before them around the doomed and sacrificed city of Kiev. A massive pocket of trapped Soviet troops to the east of the city would be in time reduced. Some 15,000 Soviet troops did manage to escape to the south, but by the time Stalin gave permission to abandon the city on September 17th, it was a moot point. General Kirpanos, who was with the trapped men, tried his own escape from the German Kiel, or encirclement, on September 20th, with the 289th Rifle Division, but was caught by a German ambush and killed, along with his men. As for any further serious resistance by those Russian soldiers still within Kiev, that ended on September 24th. That's when the Germans moved in. But also on that day, remote-controlled fires flared into life. Many German soldiers, thinking they could rest for a while in the rubbled remains of a building, were killed, burned alive. Hitler got his first serious lesson about urban warfare. As for the trapped Soviet soldiers outside the city, their defense went on until October 4th. The majority of the trapped soldiers that died were killed by 625 tons of bombs dropped on them from September 12th to the 21st. With the defenders around Kiev removed, for just this moment in time, the invaders slightly outnumbered the defenders. This allowed the Germans to continue moving east. Stalin reacted by rushing Timoshenko into the area, but once again the Germans had the momentum on their side. The Russians in the south could do nothing more than react and retreat. As the Kiev kill was being reduced by the 6th and 17th armies, along with the 1st Panzer Group, Rundstedt, making sure the Romanian 4th Army was progressing in its siege of Odessa, he sent the 3rd and 11th Romanian armies to the Crimea. Although the Soviets did not have the ability at the time to launch a flight from there to bomb his Ploeste oil fields, Hitler wanted it under German control nonetheless, for that very reason. Also, its capture would perhaps show Turkey that Soviet Russia was truly on its last leg and become a partner. Stalin, getting reports that the Axis forces were moving ever eastward against a southern front, ordered General Tulinev to hold the line along the Dnieper, from Dnipropetrovsk, 200 miles or 321 kilometers north of the Crimea, as the river folded back in on itself and then went down to the southwest. Tulinev was to hold from the city all the way to the coast. But as he only had 20 rifle, one tank division, and a few cavalry divisions, it was not meant to be. Then the order from Moscow changed to just hold the major bridgeheads across the Dnieper. But even that was not meant to be. The German 11th Army, which had been holding the right flank during the attack on Kiev, and clearly that was no longer necessary, with the questionable help of Romanian forces, made their way across the Dnieper at Kyrsen, near the coast, and towards the opening of the Crimea. But the setback started just as soon as the Dnieper was crossed. General von Schobert, commander of the 11th Army, 
was flying above his surging forces, planning for his next step to the Crimea, when his plane accidentally landed in the middle of an enemy minefield on September 12th. The Soviet defenders took advantage of this confused state and pulled back their forces closer to the entrance of the Crimea. So, when the reconnaissance battalion of the 1st Panzer Division Leibstandarte SS Adolf Hitler tried to take Perenkop on the northern side of the opening, it was repulsed. It seems that the Russians were better prepared than expected. The deceased von Schober was replaced by General Manstein, who had been at the Leningrad front. Manstein took one look at the tactical situation of his now 11th Army and told his superiors that his forces could not take the Crimea and protect the right flank of the 17th Army that was just north of them, but continuing on, pushing their way east. The Germans had already decided to invade the Crimea by the land bridge at Peretkop. The other land mass to its right had too many small lakes breaking up the land. No, it had to be here. But standing in the way of the invaders was the Tartar Ditch. Some 150 feet wide and in some places 60 feet deep, with a earthen bank behind it, the Soviets had four rifle and two cavalry divisions just behind it, and two more rifle and one more cavalry division further back. Further behind the initial defensive line that was the Tartar Ditch, the defenders had other redoubts, with artillery backed up by the Soviet Black Sea Fleet, and respectable air power, as well as 100 tanks. As for the Germans, the majority of their fighters and bombers of Luftflot 4 were still engaged at Kiev and Odessa. Still, the Germans came into the Crimea, attacking its entrance on September 24th. Pushing the Soviets back were the 46th and 73rd Infantry Divisions, with the support of a few Stukas, who went after the Russians' larger guns and 20 artillery battalions. By the next day, September 25th, the Germans approached the Tartar Ditch. Husbanding his infantry, Manstein used his artillery and limited air power to good effect, silencing the Russian guns and forcing the enemy soldiers back, which allowed the invaders to cross the ditch on September 26th. The Germans then poured into the Crimea proper. It looked as if this battle would go the way of all the others before it. But to the northeast of Perakop, the entrance to the Crimea, near a city called Molitopol, some 100 miles or 160 kilometers to the northeast, but still within Manstein's responsibility, some 13 Soviet rifle divisions attacked, opening a gap that allowed two enemy tank brigades to pour through. This was a crisis of the First Order. Pulling his eyes away from the Crimea, Manstein practically ran the now-German counterattack there from the end of September to the first week of October. In that time, he managed to seal the gap, thus cutting off the Soviet 9th and 18th Armies and the two tank brigades. By October 5th, Melitopol, the city the Soviet counterattack was meant to save, was captured, and soon after, the Soviets faced another kill 
with 106,000 men trapped, along with 212 tanks and 766 guns. Those Soviet troops who had started out with such high hopes were now out of the war. With his northeastern flank secure, Manstein turned his attention back to the Crimea. So that it may be wrapped up ASAP, von Kleist gave Manstein the 49th Mountain Corps and the Panzer SS Adolf Hitler Division. This now meant that some six infantry divisions, the Panzer Division plus two smaller Romanian Mountain Corps, would be involved. What's more, the Mercurio Goring was flattered and talked into providing three fighter and two Stuka Gruppen for the attack. The attack proper on the Crimea commenced on October 18th at 5.40 a.m., after the various divisions were in place. As the Germans drove deeper south, the land widened, which allowed them to bring more troops to the fore. With German air power now pounding the Soviets, who had been forced to leave the majority of their large guns on the mainland, the Soviets had no choice but to continuously backpedal. However, now that the invaders were past the narrow landway, each time a flank would get bogged down by stiff Russian resistance, Manstein would simply switch his focus to the other flank. Thus, his offensive was able to stay on the move and keep the momentum. By October 26, the Soviets closest to the Germans broke and ran. Just to give you an idea, back on October 15th, the Germans had passed the first defensive line south of Perikop. By the 24th, they were beyond the second. By October 29th, they had pierced the third. By October 30th, the Germans had driven so far south. The Soviet line broke in the middle. Some of them headed toward Sevastopol in the southwestern corner, the rest for Kerch, the farthest southeastern corner of the peninsula. By November, both locations were surrounded by Axis forces. Yet Sevastopol would not fall according to plan. The Soviets had worked hard since late 1940 to make the city impregnable. Protecting the harbor were three concentric defensive lines, with enough distance between each to help the defenders take aim from whichever was the outermost line still in their hands, while the attackers were left out in the open once they penetrated one. There were over 3,000 bunkers within these rings and 140,000 mines to contend with, besides the anti-tank ditches, trenches, naval caliber guns, and some 100 planes. Just behind the city was the Black Sea Fleet, adding its guns to the cause. As Manstein no longer had motorized units in the Crimea, the SS Adolf Hitler had been ordered to join in on the drive to Rostov. The infantry divisions were expected to get the job done alone. In fact, had the Panzer stayed, they would have been able to beat the Soviets to Sevastopol in the great foot race that characterized the last stage of their retreat. But as November opened up and the attack on Sevastopol was to commence, bad weather caused a delay. What's more, Soviet partisans seemed to rise from the ground itself to harass Manstein's men. Then the general lost what air power he had as they were sent to Moscow. For the defenders, their aircraft now 
had control of the skies, and the Black Sea Fleet had no trouble in resupplying the defenders. The chance to take the port city had been lost. For now. The Attack on Kharkov The great victory at Kiev now meant the German 6th and 17th armies had to process their 660,000 new prisoners of war. This took time, time they did not have, as their next objectives were the industrial cities Kharkov and Stalino. But how were the two German armies to keep pushing east, some 200 miles or 321 kilometers to Kharkov and even further to Stalino, as the Russians were not expected to give up any territory without a fight? Yet the question gave its own answer. As the Russians were sure to continue with their defensive lines, the Germans planned to continue to counter with encirclement and destruction. Besides, the Germans needed the oil of the Caucasus so they could go on, whereas the Russians equally needed the oil, but also important was the lend-lease material coming through Iran. No, this area had to remain in Soviet hands. As for Stalin, he looked forward to this coming fight. With the Germans obsessed with the capture of Moscow, he couldn't wait to gain the initiative here in the South. Von Reichenau, commander of the 6th Army, moved out on October 6th. They quickly captured Sumy and other territory northwest of Kharkov on their way to that city. Meanwhile, the 17th Army, now under the command of Colonel General Hermann Hoth, he replaced von Stubenegel due to illness, turned to the southeast, their final objective being Stalino. But before getting there, the 17th captured Lozavaya, 100 miles or 67 kilometers due east of Kiev, rather easily. It seemed true that the Russians had not pulled themselves together in the area after the fall of Kiev. Furthermore, Hoth rather contemptuously divided his forces, sending one half to Izum and the other to Stalino, both southeast of Kharkov. But then, on October 14th, in stepped Hitler, who had lost confidence in von Reichenau, for his own reasons, and ordered both armies to take Kharkov. Von Reichenau thought about replying that this move would leave the left flank of the 1st Panzer Army, which was on its way to Rostov, exposed. But instead, he silently obeyed orders. So Hoth's 17th Army swung itself east and then to the northwest as it was slightly past Kharkov, approaching the city from the southeast. Meanwhile, von Reichenau and his 6th Army swung north of the target city to cut it off and hopefully encircle many, many Soviet troops, as before. But the Stavka reacted to this threat on October 19th by ordering a general pullback. The German 6th tried to keep up with the retreating troops, even going a bit past Belgorod to the northeast of Kharkov, but the Soviets would not allow themselves to be surrounded. Then the cold came and all German progress in the area was halted. Again, the gains by the invaders were remarkable, yet the state of their men and machines were anything but. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. 
With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. As for the 1st Panzer Army making its way to Rostov, as Manstein was focused solely on the Crimea, von Kleist took the reins. With Manstein's successful entrapping of the 9th and 18th Soviet armies in early October, along with its 200-plus tanks and many guns, this left the area immediately east of Meletopol relatively open, and von Kleist took advantage of this. The 1st Panzer Army dashed on, just above the Sea of Azov, and made for Rostov. Army Group South Commander Kleist had his 1st Panzer Army stop for a refit in late October, but by November 5th, they were more or less ready to move out. Their objective was Rostov, just east of the Sea of Azov, as its possession would further weaken Soviet resistance in the far south. As Kleist was thinking of complete victory as opposed to a simple raid on a city, he would have the 1st Panzer Army swing past Rostov to its north, then turn southwest, to then approach the city from the northeast. This would allow a buffer zone to be created east of the city, as the Germans planned on settling in Rostov for the winter. To get as far as it had, the 1st Panzer Army had created a 30-kilometer or 18-mile gash into the Soviet defense, held by the Soviet 9th Army. But the Panzers weren't going much further east. Between the losses sustained just to get this far and the increased Soviet resistance, Kleist had the 1st Army halt on November 11th, as they were just north of Rostov, but not beyond it. He then had the Panzer Army take eight days to prepare for the attack that would see them, with any luck, in possession of the city. But during those eight days, the Stavka, its communications vastly improved, readied its own response to the threatened Rostov. Southern Front Commander General Chermevichkino was given Major General Lopatin's newly created 37th Army and told to use it to keep Rostov clear of Germans. But as the Russian 37th Army formed up at Shatby, 60 miles or 96 kilometers northeast of Rostov, the Germans went ahead with their attack on the city on November 17th. Caught somewhat off guard, the Russians moved out the same day. Though the 37th Army had more of everything except armor than the invaders, the Germans still managed to attack the town while holding off Lopatin's attacks on their flanks and rear. How? For the Soviet forces, it was late June, all over again. Local poor communication, poor command and control, all topped off by the inability or unwillingness to bring all their tanks together to make an effective striking force. By November 21st, the German 1st Panzer Army had taken the city and kept the would-be defenders out. So the Germans had Rostov, but Halder, back with the general staff, could not see how it would be held. 
The enemy had more forces and the freedom of movement. And he was right. Cherovichenko regrouped his men and machines and hit Rostov on November 27th from the northwest and south, thereby not allowing the now-defending Germans to amass their smaller force for protection. The Russians came ever closer to the city's outskirts. There were simply not enough defenders to keep them back. And Kleist knew it would be better to be reprimanded for losing a town than to be shot by the Germans or the Russians if his entire army was captured. The 1st Panzer Army pulled out of Rostov and dashed to the west to take up a position along the River Meuse. Ironically, this was where their advance to take the city had started from. The Soviet 56th and 9th Armies moved into Rostov, but then followed the retreating German forces all the way back to the river. It was here that the Southern Theater would stabilize, for now. The Russians, having lost only a paltry, relatively speaking, 158,000 men, had stopped and pushed back Army Group South, which is why Kleist had nothing to offer the attackers of Moscow when December came. But it would be that fight, the wrestling for the Soviet capital, that would decide this war. Footnote. The Germans did get something for their deep penetration in the south. They did get access to the oil pipeline from Baku, thus giving them enough fuel for a few weeks. And just to give an example of how many Russian soldiers died in 1941 alone, at the prisoner camp near Lavalve, some 200,000 prisoners perished through murder or starvation. Of course, there wasn't enough food for them. There were no plans to keep the men alive in the first place. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I just wanted to let the members know that the two episodes for this month might be one day late just because this episode was so massive as far as the research and everything I was trying to cover. Don't worry, at the most, it will be 24 hours late. We're going to do a couple of episodes on the 1936 Olympics um, um, from Hitler's perspective, obviously Jesse Owens will figure heavily into that, but because of the movie that's coming out, I just wanted to cover it. So just give me 24 more hours, and I promise I'll have those out to you. And for the rest of you, if you are so interested in membership, just go to www.worldwar2podcast.net. Take care, everyone. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.